broadcasting live from the phx.fm studio in phoenix arizona it's time for valley business radio spotlighting the valley's best businesses and the people who lead them hello and welcome to valley business radio where we tell the stories that traditional media tends to ignore and help connect you to the right people I'm your host, Dr. Adrian McIntyre. I'm joined in the studio today by Trevor Wild, Managing Director of Wild Wealth Management Group. Welcome back to the Business Radio X studio, Trevor. Thank you. Good to see you again. Good to see you too. We talked to you uh, as almost a year ago mm-hmm. um, in a show we did on the financial, kind of the state of financial services. I'm excited for this conversation where we'll get to go a little bit deeper into your own firm uh, and some of what you're seeing you know, trends and opportunities and really some challenges in the industry. But why don't you start off this conversation by giving us an overview of Wild Wealth Management Group, what you do, who you serve, and kind of how it all works. Yeah, thank you. Uh, and, and again, it's great to be on. And it doesn't seem like it was a year ago, but it sure went pretty quick. Um, so yeah, Wild Wealth Management Group, we are uh, been in the Valley for about 35 years. My dad started our business back in the late 80s. Um, really with the focus on insurance planning for primarily just individuals, families, uh, business owners. And as we got into the 90s and when I came into the industry in 2000, it was it was really a shift into full-service financial planning. And our focus today is um, really a holistic approach at helping our clients manage their, their assets and think about how they run their financial lives. Uh, and that ranges from you know, the investment management piece in financial planning, which is particular to to, to my niche and my role in, in the relationship, to tax planning, uh, estate planning, uh, and we've got attorneys and CPAs that we've made up, up that have become a part of our practice so that we have the ability to serve a client uh, kind of on all capacities with professionals in each one of those fields right, you know, right there in their office. Now, traditionally, there's been the assumption that financial planning and wealth management is something that is only appropriate for people with a lot of money. Uh, And that, that somehow in, in an earlier era, the idea was you always had to have a relationship with somebody that was going to manage your own assets and that of the family and, and all these kind of things. The industry is changing and there's a lot of different ways in which folks from all levels of, of financial means ought to be thinking differently and acting smarter with regard to their income, their assets, their legacy. How do you position yourself within that kind of spectrum? You, you know, who are you, who are you specifically trying to serve? What are the challenges they're facing? How do you right. help them? Yeah, and, and it is a good point. We typically uh, will give phone calls and introductions, you know, to somebody after, you know, in their late 50s and they're getting laid off from their employer and they've got all sorts of questions and many times they've never done any planning at all. And it, and it is a challenge, right? And the main thing that I hear them say is, I wish we would have started this 20 years ago, right? When we were in our 20s or 30s, this is what we should have been doing. And you're right, there, there's a, a conception that, well, I don't have enough money, so I can't, you know, we just can't do that yet. And what we've really focused on in our organization and our firm is really trying to, to shift that from, you know, the, you know, like those 50-year-olds say, hey, I wish I would have started this 20 years ago. Starting that process when we're in our 20s and early 30s, starting it with a good foundation of having a tax plan, having the basic legal documents so that your family's protected and you have what you need, and then building upon that as your income grows and, and along with that, your net worth and, in your, and everything else grows right along with it. 
you know, there was a time when people didn't think too much about this. The average uh, worker who'd put in some time with a company had uh, a 401k or some sort of defined benefit plan. And they just knew that if I pay into this enough and work here long enough, it'll somehow all work out. Now, plenty of those folks actually had rude awakenings when they saw their accounts cut in half Mm -hmm. twice in a 15-year period. Uh, and, And now- that's not even the way in which that kind of retirement uh, planning is typically handled. We've shifted away from defined benefits to mm-hmm. defined contributions. We've right. shifted a lot of the um, responsibility for this mm-hmm. onto employees uh, and to a certain extent, although they're served typically by different products, to entrepreneurs and right. founders of, of companies. Um, when you talk about wealth management, as you've already said – There are many different dimensions to this. Mm -hmm. There's retirement. There's taxes. There's, uh, you know, a whole other host of things, insurance. If you were to categorize all this into the big buckets, uh, somebody who maybe has known they need to think about this but hasn't gotten there yet, what are the the things, if you were to sit down with them and say, all right, we got to start at least looking at these big categories, what are those buckets? Yeah, I mean— and it's interesting. I always try to get clients to think about what they're trying to do in three different buckets. Um, so that terminology was perfect. You know, the first one is really managing cash reserves in everyday life. And that, you know, and typically the conversation we're trying to have with clients is not just thinking about next month or tomorrow, but really taking a scope of the next six six months to maybe even three years. And what are the challenges and things that are going to happen financially? And that varies depending on where the person is in their life stage. It could range from, you know, our goals are to buy our first home to, you know, hey, we're having our first kid. We're having our first kid go to college. We're having our first kid get married and, you know, all the way down the line. But the idea is to think of strategizing your money in different buckets. The first bucket is typically that kind of cash reserves and managing expenses. We try to get clients to think about roughly a three-year window. The second bucket is just an extension of that. You know, what are the mid-range goals that we have that maybe are beyond three years, maybe maybe out to five to 10 years, again, depending on where people are on their stage. And that can be all those other life things. My oldest is is 14. She's in eighth grade. I've got three more right behind her. And, you know, the, the as we're planning and thinking about where she's going to go to high school, man, college doesn't seem like that far away, right? And so, you know, what was once a bucket two strategy when, she was born, you know, we're saying that's that's 18 years away. Well, that's starting to move into our bucket one strategy and becoming a lot more of a conversation piece than it has been. And then bucket three is your retirement, you know, and to your point, the industry and, and, and the economy has moved away from defined benefit type of plans where if you, you knew what I call our first generation clients, which today are in their late 80s, they retired from corporations where they had a pension, they had social security that they could count on, and whatever they were able to save just give them a little bit of extra, right? And that has completely flipped where today's employee is fully responsible for their own destiny. And there's a lot of good things about that. But again, if you wait and that the planning comes late in life, it can also present a lot of problems. As like you said, a lot of people have had rude awakenings when they've come to that reality. Yeah. Now you talked about the the lifespan and kind of the aging up of your clientele that you've experienced through the time you came into yeah. the firm and began to, to run it. Uh, let's talk about the industry itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's got to be also a parallel kind of aging process going on. Is the industry... 
in terms of the advisors? Are they getting older? Uh, is is that creating a bit of a relationship gap for younger yeah. generations that don't necessarily see a 65-year-old uh, career professional as the right fit for them to talk to about their assets? Yeah, absolutely. And, and our industry as a whole is is aging. I think the average in, uh, adv- average age of an advisor, a licensed advisor in the country today is somewhere about 55 to 60 years old. But when you look at percentages of the age of the average advisor, about 40% of the advisors in the country are over 60, right? And then we've got a gap, you know, from about 40 to 60 and new entrances into the industry, people that are coming into the industry in their 20s and 30s really drops off and, and from a percentage basis is very small. So I think it presents a couple of of unique um, situations. Number one, with clients. Again, if you're a 20-year-old, again, and, and you're meeting, probably not like it was 20 years ago for me, right? I came into the business. I started in 1999. And so both of those crashes that you you talked about before, I, I lived through and I learned a lot of really great lessons early on, uh, not only on, on, on the risk of the market and, and why asset allocation is important and why... You know, the emotional side of it is also something to keep a cue on. But I'm sure, you know, at 23 years old, if I was sitting down with a 65-year-old 20 years ago, that, that gentleman might have been saying, I'm not sure that this, you know, that this young whippersnapper knows enough to be, you know, and, and we're just in a different life cycle. Um, so it does present a, a potential gap, you know, not, because not only are is the average age of the advisor in the industry, uh, we're aging, um, but technology is advancing. Um, and, and what we find out of like a lot of different businesses, you know, a lot of those advisors that are mature and comfortable in their practice may not be driven to adapt to new technologies uh, as much as they were 10 years ago or 15 years ago or 20 years ago. And we definitely see more demand from our younger clients out of utilizing these additional technologies, not only to help, you know, plan and prepare, um, but just in accessibility, the, the desires there, and there, that presents another gap. I mean, you know, I'm I'm getting to the point, and you know, I'm 46. I'm I'm squarely in the middle of uh, the most disaffected generation, Gen X. <laughs> um, and uh, yes, Winona Ryder is my spirit animal. But um, you know, if if it's not on my phone, it doesn't yeah. exist, right? Uh, and you know, well, we commonly make uh, you know snide remarks—not we, but we hear people making snide remarks about millennials, which is funny because uh, they don't realize millennials are actually older than they think. <laughs> like they're talking about twelve-year-olds and calling them millennials, which is confused. Anyway, I digress. Um, if it's not on my phone, I, I, it's getting to the point where I don't—I don't really want to know about it. I need to be able to see it here. This is what I have at my fingertips most of the time, uh, and. You know, having a an appropriate technological way for me to engage both with my money and with my uh, expert advisors, my trusted you know folks who are guiding me through things is really important. Right. There's another shift though, which is also interesting. I'd love for you to talk a little bit about the way that the industry makes its own money is changing yeah. because not only is technology becoming more important, but the traditional ways that advisors got paid is changing with a shift from commissions uh, through to other forms. Can you speak to that? Yeah, and, and it's I'm 42, so I'm right with you in that Gen X category. And it you know it's it feels funny to say 20 years in the business, which I'm heading into this year. But over that period of time, again, there's been a dramatic shift in in compensation models. You know, the the, the word fiduciary and the idea of a fiduciary really didn't exist. Uh, in our industry 20 years ago. And really, I'd, I'd say it's probably the last 10 years 
that there's really been a push probably coming out of the last recession was a, was a bigger push in, in a shift in the industry away from commissionable um, essentially products where you know everybody would call themselves a financial advisor but ultimately how they got paid was by selling you a mutual fund or a stock or an annuity or whatever the potential product was to to really shifting to two compensation models that we see in the industry today, which is either a fee for planning, where you, like, much like you would work with your attorney or maybe even your CPA, there's going to be a scope of, of, of what you're going to do, and there's going to be a cost for that. It might be in the form of an hourly rate or a, a retainer or just a fixed you know, cost for developing the financial plan. And, and the second strategy or, or method we're seeing is asset management fees. Uh, which is you know, the the fiduciary advisor is taking full responsibility of of handling the money, the investments that the, that the person might have, and their compensation is being derived as a percentage of that overall account. Which really, if you think about it, is the way it should have always been. You know, we, we the problem with commissions is it presents conflict, right? And and as much as I think you know everybody wants to do the right thing or most people want to do the right thing, it, there's a potential conflict in there. If you're working with a fiduciary fee based advisor or fee advisor, or fee-only advisor, uh, it helps eliminate, and maybe not eliminate, but it helps reduce and, and hopefully eliminate even more potential conflicts of interest when it, when it comes to making a decision on where you invest your money and how you do it. Yeah. Is there a, a third, or is this covered in one of the categories where you pay a, a fixed monthly fee? Mm-hmm. Is that something that's common or is that not yet? It, we're seeing it. You know, that fee for service is, is you know, kind of that area. Right. right. And, I mean, you had described, a, you know, for a financial plan, right. like what you're buying is mm-hmm. the, the deliverable of the plan is right. more of a one-time fee. I'm right. just wondering if, and you, met, you did mention retainers, I guess. So that would fit in that monthly yeah. ongoing, yeah. like, listen, I know I'm in for 1500 a month or whatever, and that's, yeah. that's covering everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think it's worth underlining the point that you made. It's so important. This is about removing uh, the conflict of interest right. and aligning the incentives right. properly. Correct. Because in, in the, in the commission uh, model, whereas you, what you really had, regardless of the title of what you put on it, broker, advisor, whatever, you had somebody who was in the business of selling product, right? And they got paid when they sold you this fund or that thing. Mm-hmm. They got paid on that, so they needed to keep selling more. Mm-hmm. And you very rarely had people saying, you know, what we should do right now, what would be in the best interest of your portfolio is we sell mm-hmm. <laughs> some of yeah. these holdings right. to either capture gains. Or protect right. against losses. Mm-hmm. There's almost nobody saying selling is a smart money management strategy when, in fact, it is. Right. So, aligning incentives with your clients, meaning you really are serving in their interest. Now, you've used the word fiduciary. We've talked about this a little bit before on this show, but for folks that maybe haven't heard those previous conversations or don't understand what we're talking about now, can you explain what the term fiduciary means and how it's managed and regulated? It's not just a casual word. Yeah, no, it's not at all. I mean, fiduciary um, essentially means that that, that that fiduciary, that person has to put your needs, the client's needs above all else. Meaning, you know, how they get compensated is not primary, it's secondary, if not third to, again, the ultimate client's end needs and goals with their money, right? So, the, the, and again, like you stated, it, it, this is not just a conceptual thing from a legal perspective. This holds one of the highest, you know, accords in the country and, and really is something that should be looked for, you know, with people that you're working with. Yeah, it, it's funny that we don't have a parallel concept in some other 
industries where there ought to be a designation that says this agent, this representative, this human being with this firm is required to right. put your interests above right. theirs. I mean, other other fields have codes of ethics and things that right. try to address this, but nothing that is uh, specifically regulated. Now, you yourself have attained the AIF designation. What is that, and what did you have to do to get yeah. it? Yeah, the AIF is a, an accreditation. It stands for the Accredited Investment Fiduciary. Um, it, it is a uh, process of ongoing training through the through continuing education on an annual basis, adhering to higher standards and um, background checks and all that that goes along with it. So, you know, I attained that designation about two and a half years ago, uh, almost three years ago. Um, it was a rigorous six month training program that ended with a capstone test, and then, as I said, on an annual basis, there's continuing education and ongoing items to maintain that designation. You mentioned the importance of technology for younger uh, populations, for younger clients. What is Wild Wealth Management Group doing on that front to stay abreast of these developments? Yeah, it's a moving target. You know, I mean, we are a small business. We employ um, 20 people. We have 13 advisors, so we're certainly growing. But it is difficult as a small business, I'm sure many of your listeners can attest to, of balancing you know, all of the things that we do as small business owners from making sure we have the right staff to making sure that they're, you know, the, 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 what we offer our staff is, is what they need to making decisions on investing in technology. So it is an ever-moving target. Um, we, we find ourselves probably a few times a year reevaluating the technology vendors that, that we use and, and do we develop our own or use, or use somebody else's. I, I would say the approach that we've taken thus far is to leverage partners that we have. Right. And, um, you know, in this industry, as, as, a, as the average advisor is aging, as regulation is becoming um, uh, heavier and, and, and more uh, intrusive to a small business owner, our decision has been to partner with a larger organization that does have deep pockets, that's investing in technology, investing in ways that we can plug into them from a compliance standpoint to meet uh, additional suitability guidelines and not bury us in cost. Right, so that that's been the approach that we've taken is really to partner with Insatera Advisors as our as our broker dealer, and and that's helped us leverage through uh, continuing to advance technologies that otherwise would be very difficult to do. It really is fascinating, you know, especially for the, those of our generation who have watched this whole thing from its complete non-existence. I mean, we remember the world without the internet <laughs> uh, to where we're at today, and even this, like, it's so early. It's so early. The The consumer-facing internet itself is, I mean, maybe 25 years old if you were super geeky, yeah. you know, back then. Um, I mean, I remember when America Online was mailing CDs in the mail to try to get people to sign up for email addresses. Right. Um, and what's about to happen over the next 10 or 15 years, we can't even begin to imagine because yeah. the speed of this is accelerating. Mm -hmm. We talked to a lot of folks from different industries in this studio who have realized that in order to remain competitive in their field, they have to become a technology company of some form or another. They have to continue mm -hmm. delivering their expertise in whatever way they do. But th to your point, they either need to find a partner that's right. going to deliver that, or they need to develop it. And, right. you know, both viable options, none, none yeah. right than the other. Um, we, we had a, um, 
someone in here from the real estate space who realized what they really needed was to solve a specific problem. They pivoted their whole practice and essentially became, uh, you know, hired developers and carried that through. Uh, there are others who are innovating the products that other experts will use. Right. Um, it's just a fascinating thing to watch this all change. Now, you mentioned regulation. That's a big deal. That's a big issue. Uh, it's, a, it's, as you said, a, a point of, um, I don't know if contention is the right word. Uh, what is the issue with regulation right now? Is it a problem? Is it something that's fixable? What needs to happen? Yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's a great question. I think the answer probably depends on who you talk to. Right. I mean, the, this this transition that we've seen in our industry from commissions to, you know, f- you know, fee based planning, hard dollar planning, retainer planning is is a step in the right direction. But along with it, our industry is trying to figure out how to regulate that and really to move it from a, you know, hey, you 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 could choose to go get an AIF and follow that and call yourself a financial advisor, or you don't have to, which is kind of where it sits today. And the end client may not know if if I mean, you know, the advisor right. whether they're commissioned or or fee based or flat dollar amount should be talking about that. But but the reality is there's really not a standard. So our industry is trying to figure that out, right? And creating a standard for where if you're going to call yourself an advisor, you've got to be a fiduciary. And along with that comes a lot of new regulation and changes, right? So what I often hear uh, out of the, you know, the groups that I'm associated with the thousands of advisors from around the country, if, you know, a lot of advisors, especially the majority of them, they're in their late fifties, early sixties, probably on the tail end of their career. If you ask them, they'd probably say, this is a, this is, you know, horrible, right? My perspective is I, I think it's necessary. And I think eventually um, we get to the right, you know, kind of medium ground, if you will, between what needs to happen, right? To keep the consumer aware and to make it more even um, and, and, and hopefully not overdone to where the, the average investor gets hurt. Right, because from a you know from a small organization like ours, where we don't have a you know fifty million dollar compliance budget, it is a challenge and it is a concern. You know, how far will this regulation go? Are we going to have to hire two more full time people to do this? And how does that impact how we work with our clients? And and the fear is is that it could end up you know an organization like mine saying, well, if our cost goes up, there's a certain level of client that we just can't support, and that's what we don't want to see. Um, so you know, again, I think it asks. I think it depends on who you ask. I think a lot of, of of the older generation advisors look at it with disdain, and and probably would say a lot harsher things than just that about the regulation. Um, I, I think ultimately it's necessary in our in our industry. I think it will end in in the right place, and I and I think it's. I think it'll be a really good thing, as you know, there will be people in the business that maybe shouldn't be uh, that opt out. You know, because the requirements will be will be more stringent, and and ultimately, uh, will end uh, in in a better industry because of it. I think that transparency in any industry on how it is exactly that people are compensated makes a lot of sense, and would go a long way towards helping to address some of the consumer protection side of this. As you say, most people don't realize the difference between someone who's calling themselves, you know, a broker advisor, someone who's calling themselves a fiduciary, someone who's calling themselves a financial planner. They may have no idea that there's different designations, right. you know, and the alphabet soup <laughs> that people put after their names, right. you know, doesn't doesn't address the 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 retail market for sure, who's like, I have no idea what these letters mean. It must be important. Yeah. Uh, you know, even I have PhD after my name, which I often joke is the most expensive, useless three letters I ever bought. And, uh, you know, which isn't really true, but um, I'm not using it for what I thought I would when I invested in it. Uh, and 
so, you know, there's just a lot of confusion out there clarifying uh, how it is that we make our money seems to be uh, something that would help eliminate a fair amount of bad behavior. I was just reading this fascinating article. Uh, it's in the archives of the Los Angeles Times. The article was published in 1991, and it was talking about the heyday of business radio, back when radio, in this case, meant mostly FM. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly AM was a thing, but the, they were talking about FM. Um, in the in the Wall Street boom era of the 80s, you know, Greed is Good, Gordon Gecko, all that, um, there was an explosion of new radio networks that were buying up frequencies and building radio stations, you know, broadcast radio, terrestrial radio. They had to get frequencies licensed from the FCC. They had to expend, you know, $30 million in capital, all this stuff to put these. And they ran into a huge problem, which was their content, their financial news mm-hmm. was mostly thinly veiled sales pitches, the experts coming on the radio to talk about this fund or that thing or this stock opportunity or whatever were were pushing products that they were benefiting from. And that led to a whole series of lawsuits and FTC interventions and things. And financial news radio in that in that um in that way really kind of was a flash in the pan and then a burn and disappear kind of a thing. Like it 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 crashed and burned. Uh, and obviously, networks like Bloomberg, MSNBC, and others have found new ways to try to do legitimate business news, financial news, and things of that nature. Um, but it does raise an interesting question, which is, for a small a firm like yours, um, relatively small, I mean, you're larger than a lot, uh, you you have to spread the word, you have to market your expertise, you have to build relationships. How do you grow your clientele in 2020. <laughs> What's the vision for that? Yeah, again, probably a never moving target with technology advancements and all the above. But I'll go back to what we, what my dad always said was the most important thing was just educating our clients, right? And so our our focus really from before me in the late 80s, the you know, and and as I came into the industry in the early 2000s, how we met people was through educating them. You know, we we taught classes to the community colleges here in the Maricopa County area. Um, we taught through uh, um, Fortune 500 companies to their retirees. And and as we shifted away from that, probably in the mid-2000s, we continued with that emphasis, which was, you know, we, like all small business owners, have a number of ways to invest in the growth of our organization. There's, you know, methods of marketing. We've always opted to spend that money back into our clients through educational forums, which we host, you know, probably 13 educational forums throughout the course of the year, ranging in topic from tax planning to estate planning to college planning, which is a, a major one for, again, our generation, Gen Xers, uh, to investment management and, and retirement planning. And that served us well. We also think that it helps. One of the things that, again, my dad always said is that the better educated our clients are, the better decision we'll make together. And it is true. When, when you're partnering, when, when, when someone decides to hire an advisor in the true capacity, it's really a partnership. Right, the advisor is going to give advice and suggest things to help improve that client. The client has to be willing and able on the other end to either say, "Hey, I, I don't want to do that," or "I'm not going to do that," and be willing to, like any sort of a coach, whether it's fitness or dietary or, or whatever you think about, change their behavior and lifestyle to help them improve. Right. So, so for us, you know, I think the use of technology will be uh, more apparent as we move forward into 2020. Um, but I think our, our core is going to remain true to education. You know, so we we plan to do maybe more things like this in the form of podcasts to help educate our clients 
uh, webinars, items like that. But um, the core will still be educational in nature. Circling back to what you said earlier about regulation, I'm struck as I interact with professionals around the valley, whether at, uh, you know, chambers of commerce breakfasts or, you know, variety of other open networking events, or even folks who come here in the studio, a lot of folks in financial services, especially those aligned with larger firms, mm-hmm. um, have expressed to me privately that they are frustrated that they feel their hands are tied when it comes to communicating online through social media, for example. Um, Some have said, you know, we can't even post anything on our own LinkedIn accounts. It has to go through, you know, our, you know, corporate and run by legal and and all of this stuff. Um, you, You may have a different point of view on this again as an independent, but you know, what's that all about? What, what are they trying to prevent? And yeah, how do we kind of uh, yeah. move past some of the constraints, <laughs> yeah. the perceived the constraints? Perceived. Yeah, I, I think that's probably the right way to, at least in my experience, the perceived constraints. I think, you know, again, in an industry that's heavily regulated, as, as we are as financial professionals, regardless of how they classify themselves, whether they're fiduciary or not, there's there's a lot of regulation in industry, in particular in, in how we communicate with the public, um, which is good, right? And the idea is to prevent... Um, those who may be bad apples from being able to say things and attract people in the ways that that, that they shouldn't. Um, every firm has got a different stance on how they approach that. I have friends that are not independent that often vent about you know their frustrations and not being able to utilize LinkedIn as an example or or uh, Facebook and some of these other technology platforms that are really becoming more communication platforms than anything. Um, and I can't speak to to why those organizations haven't got to that point, I, other than knowing most likely it's because they haven't found a way to to ensure and show the regulatory agencies that hey, we have a method of keeping on top of 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 this and monitoring it and making sure that it's approved content. And if it's not, that it's adjusted and, and dealt with. Right. But for us as an independent, again, it is an important method of communication. You know, like you said, I mean, we've all become tied to our to our our smartphones and irregardless of age you know we we it, it's it's a great not all things are great about it as my 14 year old I'm learning very quickly with my teenager at home but again it's it's a great way to communicate it's efficient um, and for the end user it's really great because it can be on their time you know so so it is something that that I think the industry will continue to look at but I mean, it seems to me that the, you know, the, not only the water cooler of our society, but the fundamental plumbing, like the way we communicate now has so irrevocably shifted onto these apps that run on top of the internet that we access Mm -hmm. through our phones, that at some level, you know, we can't, we can't move forward thinking we've got to hold, you know, two cans and a piece of string <laughs> to our ears, yeah. given that this is the way it happens now. And this is circling back to kind of the recruiting and developing of young professionals who want to yeah. enter the industry. Uh, you, you know, I, could, I can only imagine as an outsider uh, that saying to them, all right, so here's the thing, you know, you can have a, a, a career, you can make a decent living, you can really help people. But by the way, you can't have Instagram, you can't have LinkedIn, you can't have TikTok, like right. you're going to have to set all that aside. Uh, and some people's like saying, well, I'm not doing that. Right. What, what is the state of younger folks entering the industry? What are you seeing? Uh, what, what needs to change? Yeah. Uh, 
I mean, I, I'll starting with some of the things that I do see changing. I mean, I, I do think that the younger entrants, the, the younger folks that are coming into the industry, and when I say younger, I don't know that I mean 20s or even 30s. I think for us, even in the 40s is, is a younger advisor. But we are seeing the demands, not only that that, that generation is bringing in, uh, it's helping the industry. We're, we're seeing a lot more development in companies and organizations that were really founded based on there was an advisor who, who, who did this for 15, 20 years like myself who found a niche in helping other advisors communicate and, and have shifted and moved away from a retail business of helping people and helping advisors. So I, I do think, number one, that, that what we're seeing is we are seeing, you said it earlier, in 10 years, we're not going to know what it looks like. We're seeing that in our industry right now, right? The, the changes, the new companies that have been developed on a daily basis, monthly basis, the, the platforms and tools that we have today, we just launched a, a program called Advice Pay that's geared towards exactly what you talked about, right? Having the ability to take someone on, say it doesn't matter if you have a million dollars or 10 million or $1, our charge is going to be $150 a month. That's going to be for them. And, and it's set up, it's automated with a technology platform and app that they can view and, pr and watch their progress in their financial plan. These things did not exist five years ago. You know, so I think that the push from this demand, not only from consumers, right, in our generation and, and even millennials and even the older generation that want to see more of it, it we're seeing advancements in, in the offerings um, quicker than we ever have before in my experience. It's also for forcing organizations, bigger, the big organizations, right, the broker dealers and the warehouse firms uh, and, and RAs alike to think differently about it, you know, where... I think a lot of advisors, you know, 10 years ago just felt like, you know, their compliance department was there to stop them from doing things. I think the smart advisors recognize that that's not the case. And the, and the good firms are, are helping educate their compliance department that our job is not to stop these things from happening. They're to help educate advisors about the right, rate, the right way to do it, the right way to communicate with people in the public, and also to enhance it. And, and that's what we're seeing, I think, in the differentiator maybe between the firms that, if I had to guess, will thrive over the next five or 10 years and the ones that won't. I think that's an area that, that will make or break, maybe not break, but will make the difference. As we move through our current um, political um, tumult and, and into what is certain to be um, an interesting election year, uh, I think it's fair to say that regardless of where one's personal views are, one's commitments are on the political spectrum we have in this country, uh, that the media environment has never been more divisive. Uh, some of the ways in which we talk about ourselves as as a nation to ourselves right. have, have become increasingly toxic. Uh, there's the hardening of rhetoric, the idea which I believe from my extensive experience in this country is not represented in reality. The idea that there is an us and a them internally, you know, my team and their team and like all this other nonsense is be taking on much more, um, I don't know, kind of rigidity. It seems to somehow be more, more real in the way we speak than it actually is. Uh, and this changes the way in which people view themselves, their families, their neighborhoods, their futures. Um, it, w with all that as a backdrop, mm -hmm. um, you know, some, some media companies make a lot of money, uh, by the way, media companies on, on both sides of that spectrum make a lot of money by, by fanning the flames of fear, by trying to get people more upset, um, more scared, more angry. 
how, you know, what, what does this hold for your industry? Like, how do you, you're in the, you're really in the business of sensible advice right. for people, for serious people right. that want to be responsible, mm-hmm. take care of themselves and their families. Correct. And these same people, again, regardless of their party affiliation or anything else, are, um, you know, are caught up in many cases in the emotional heat yeah. of our time. Right. How do you, what's this, yeah. what, what, what's going to happen? I mean, not what's going to happen with the election, but uh, how does this inform the way you have to talk to people? I mean, people are going to come to you with a lot of different yeah. things oh, yeah. on their mind. Oh, yeah. You say, hey, let's get together to talk about your financial plan. You might have to listen to them vent for 40 minutes yeah. about those people, right. whoever they are, yeah, right? Right. one or the other. Yeah. No, it, it's, you know, I mean, there's two, there's two emotions that we deal with in investing, you know, and it's it's fear and greed. Right. And the one thing that, you know, again, my dad taught me 20 years ago as a, as a focus on when we're dealing with people's life savings and how to think about it, we're not only trying to make decisions with investments, we're also trying to help make sure people maintain a level of balance. Right. And you're right. Uh, you know, meetings today are um, on both sides of the spectrum um, are, are, are emotional, you know, the, and, and it's heightened that, that, like you said, it's definitely a heightened sense of emotion um, and, and, and tends to be more on the fear side. Um, I think not, all, not always, there is some greed out there, but, but, you know, but again, the, the idea is our job of, as investment advisors and helping people plan through this is to try to help them come back to the middle ground. We can't ignore it, right? Because the reality in, in my business is there's so much of what we do is statistical, but it's not a sure thing, right? Nobody knows if the economy is going to be through the roof next year or down or flat. You know, there's all those that like to, you know, suggest they know, but but the reality is nobody really knows. We're trying to help make educated decisions. But your point of the heightened emotional environment that, that we exist in today is that it, it does exist. And I think, I think to the different realm of advisors, and I, I you know, I, I started late 1999. My first year in the industry was 2000, and you know what happened. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we had about six months of fun, and then we went through two years That's where the market ugly. lost 50% of its value. And then we had five or six years where there was a lot of fun again. And then in 2008, the market lost 50% of its value. I do find it interesting as I talk to younger advisors, and when I say younger advisors, these are advisors that have been in the industry for 10 years. But that group of advisors has not been through a serious recession or correction. And having those conversations with clients, I remember some of the ones I had back in 2000 when I was in the, you know, they were difficult. You don't, I didn't know how to handle them, right? I learned a lot through them, right? And I think everybody who went through those periods of time, you know, learned something. But, um, you know, the value that I think a good advisor brings to the table is helping their client Kind of try to, you can't ignore it, you know, again, but let's, let's take that into consideration, but let's take a step back and consider where are you in your plan? Are you ahead of the table? You know, are you ahead of the path that we set out for you behind the path? And that's really what should drive decisions, right? Not necessarily, you know, an assumption of what may happen, although that's always taken into consideration, but it's got to be geared towards where are you in your plan? Are you ahead of course? And then maybe, maybe again, maybe that makes sense to scale back and be more conservative going into a year of uncertainty. But if you're behind your plan, you know, taking that kind of action will only set you back more. And so, it, it, but you're right. You know, there is a heightened level of emotion right now. It's not likely to go away. Um, and again, I think, you know, our advisors and just advisors in general are going to be having more, um, you know, conversations about, trying to control emotion. And it's interesting because not only do we have the rhetoric of the election and the fear of what might happen, 
we're also at all-time highs with the stock market. So at the same time, you've got those that are saying, hey, I made 20% last year. And what does that, you know, as human beings, that greed factor goes, well, geez, I only made 13. Right. (laughs) 13%. I only made 13%. You know, so we have a, a, a you know, an interesting environment where you've got these emotional, you turn on the TV, the radio, that's what you're going to hear. But then you go talk to your friends and everybody's talking about how well they're doing. And that forces a different emotion of us, which is the greed factor, right? And investors, you know, typically will kind of chase those emotions. A very interesting time in our industry, for sure. I mean, it's it's just fascinating to me because, first of all, let's be honest, the the it the topic of money is something that tends to make us collectively crazy. It, it's it's funny that um, a phenomenon, which is simply a medium for the exchange of things and a way to you know to to move resources and so on, has become something that so messes with us emotionally and whatever. And it's, that's not new. That's a, that's it's a fascinating subject. Um, you know, more more of those base human emotions seem to come together around this topic and maybe one other uh, that, you know, it's just fascinating. As an anthropologist, not a not an economist or, or a financial expert, that interests me. Um, but also the fact of, you know, you, you spoke to this earlier, Trevor, you're really trying to lead people to responsible decisions. Mm-hmm. And the core premise of responsibility is that I have a say in in, in things, I'm I'm going to take responsibility for myself and my family for my for for my decisions. I'm going to have made some good ones. I'm going to have made some bad ones. I'm going to account for that and and make my next best decision. And certainly, the the inflammatory rhetoric and the finger pointing and the blame is in itself the absence of responsibility. It's always somebody else's fault. It's always those people. There's got to be a way in which, you know, as you spoke to so eloquently, you, you're trying to get people down off of that, yeah. you know, soapbox or or high horse or whatever and say, okay, that's fine. But now let's look at your actual reality. Right. No small challenge indeed. Yeah. What does the future hold specifically for your firm? What will we see? What do we expect from Wild Wealth Management Group in the next twenty in the next year, twenty twenty? Man, we are really really excited. I mean, not only because we, you know, we've been able to form, you know, position ourselves in a way to help people uh, probably better than we ever have before uh, with the integration with our CPA firms and our, our estate planning firms and property casualty. Um, but but also just because of you know I think where we are in the cycle you know in the economic cycle of of how things are going our our objectives are and even the technology you know the advancements the ability to and, and the reality is one of the things that our industry has kind of faced or fought with is how do you serve a millennial or a younger person who has who has no real assets if it was commission based there was no money to make and and how, you know if you're running a business like like all of your listeners or many of them. There has to be a margin. There has to be revenue there to support the time, and so these advancements of technology are, are allowing that today. So our goals and objectives are to, I think, what you'll see is a more formalization of how we really serve our client. You know, I, I look at some of the things we've done well. I think we've positioned and brought the right people on board. One of the challenges, or one of the things we haven't done well, quite frankly, is telling our clients, "Here's how we can help you in all capacities outside of just having a conversation about it." So our objective is to is to use technology and the technology that we have to be able to create a more formal service offering between all of those partners and, and make that more clear from the messaging that we deliver to to our clients. You know, it's 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 great that a firm which has been ranked 
by Barron's as a top advisor each year since 2009, mm-hmm. uh, recently ranked number seven in the state of Arizona, that you still have that kind of um, honesty, that that kind of refreshing, let's look at what we're doing, let's look at what's worked, let's look at what we can do better. And it's just the only way to stay ahead of the curve. This is a fast moving mm-hmm. and dynamic environment uh, politically, technologically, economically, every other possible yeah. way. Um, and it really does require a continued investment in your own people, in you know, building the, your own capacities and making smart partnerships and things of that nature. Really exciting uh, times. I look forward to seeing where this all goes. Yeah. Thank you, Adrian. Trevor Wild, Managing Director of Wild Wealth Management Group. Thanks for joining us in the studio today. Thank you. It was a lot of fun. For all of us here at Business Radio X, this is Dr. Adrian McIntyre. We'll see you next time on Valley Business Radio. 